One really interesting property of the war film genre is just how flexible it is as a place for storytelling. On Friendly Fire, we've seen a large number of straight-ahead, linear, drive tank A to Fort B, or shoot these guns from this trench at that trench over there films, but some of our favorite films take ingredients from across genres and combine them into something really special. We've seen train escape war film, we've seen break out of prison war film, we've seen heist war film and spy war film and so many others, but Night of the Generals is a hell of a combination in this regard, a murder mystery in a war film. It makes me wonder what other genre jams are waiting for us on our show. Romantic comedy war film? Horror war film? Summer camp coming of age film? The mind reels. And it isn't just a combination of genres that makes this film so astounding, it's the combination of actors involved. If you've only ever seen Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia, get ready to watch him order an entire Warsaw City block leveled by tanks and flamethrowers. And don't get me started on Omar Sharif here, playing a totally understated investigator who spends decades chasing down the murderer of some prostitutes from a group of suspects including O'Toole, Tom Courtenay, and Donald Pleasance. In addition to the film being a commingling of genres, it's also a weaving together of films about the same thing. As Night of the Generals joins Valkyrie in constructing the tapestry of Hitler's attempted assassination that elevates both stories. When a war film makes you focus on the characters instead of the sides of the conflict, it's bound to force you to make some hard choices. For Ben, it's, why do I have to choose only one of these Nazis to root for? But that's the magic here, they're all bad guys, and yet you want justice to be served. You want the worst Nazi to be punished by the good Nazi, and then everyone to go to Nuremberg to stand trial and then be in prison there forever. What does justice look like when it's dispensed by an imperfect adjudicator? What qualifies as murder during wartime? Who brings a gun to a dinner party? Patience is one of the few virtues I possess as we answer all of these questions and more while discussing the 1967 Antoine Litvak murder mystery war film, The Night of the Generals. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's like the natural functions. Revolting, but inevitable. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Peter O'Toole is is perfect. Like that's the line you have him read, right? If you wanna be <laughs> if you wanna get the general taunts yeah. role, you can nail that one. If you if you've got a, a line about taking a dump in your movie and you want it to seem classy, you put it in the mouth of Peter O'Toole. Uh, like restrained, I guess is what you could call his performance here. <laughs> like restrained to the point of shaking. I I read that he and Omar Sharif were very upset that they had to do this movie. Didn't like their characters. Didn't want to play them, but were kind of forced into it by contractual obligations that they'd made before either of them was super famous because of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, but I also read that they made the best of it in so doing it for obligation, right? I mean, it's it's hard 
to tell because this is a movie that not a lot has been written about. And I read that, but I also read that there were times where O'Toole showed up on set, like basically needing to be held up. He was so drunk and would like, like walk into the the frame, perfectly deliver his line and then like pass back out. <laughs> There's something so terrifyingly real about his drunk performance in the movie that that makes that story so unsurprising. The like you can make a person look uncomfortable by by putting, you know, weights in some pockets or like a pebble in a shoe, but his yeah. his walk drunk is such a specific look. I don't think I've ever seen it in a movie before. It's it's terrifying to see. It really is. This is such an interesting movie. I uh, did not see the Valkyrie thing coming at all. And I, I felt like they were making kind of like oblique references to it early on. But then you're like, like looking at Von Stauffenberg. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a movie about the, the Valkyrie plot while also being about a lot of other things also. <laughs> all all two hours and 40 minutes of it. I wonder how they fit it in. <laughs> I, I felt like, uh, I mean, if, if Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif didn't want to make this movie, I think that that makes their performances make more sense to know that. Oh. Because I feel like they're hate acting. Uh, (laughs) much in the the same way that you hate podcast (laughs) (laughs) like i really yeah i feel like if they they both were like oh if i could just be in a bathtub eating a sandwich right now instead of being on this dumb show unfortunately you're stuck in in your sam spiegel like contract with the (laughs) uxbridge shimoda corporation (laughs) but you know they both are so gifted and they're both, you know, they're acting up a storm in this movie, but they really are hate acting, right? Like they're not, neither of them ever shows any joy or love. Yeah. Well, and anytime that they're, anytime they're on screen with Donald Pleasance, you can really feel that he got paid more than they did. Oh man. And it's so wonderful to see him in a fully fledged, you know, he's not in a horror movie here. He's, you know, he's a, he's a big name actor and it's the mid sixties. I, I love Donald Pleasance's performance. Well, that's a sensible answer. John, are you saying that you had wished you had seen some some love or some joy out of Tons and Grau, who are Nazis? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure I saw love and joy when Tons was ordering that, uh, that entire city block to be flamethrowered. Oh, you're absolutely right. Like, the characters themselves, I mean, you know, like, Grau smirks his way through the whole movie but as far as seeing peter o'toole and omar sharif in their acting hearing you say that they didn't want to be there it's just like oh right i (laughs) i get it (laughs) i get it now that scene where where tons burns down a quarter of warsaw is one of the most amazing things i ever saw in film yeah it's unbelievable it's like the amount of restraint to have the have the big sexy explosions and and flamethrower stuff be merely a backdrop to a scene about a guy like going to try and ask somebody some questions and giving up. Yeah. I didn't realize that Peter O'Toole invented the Denzel Washington thing of walking away from an explosion without looking. Like 
all of that destruction happens with Peter O'Toole's back turned to it. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and how? what kind of filmmaker puts that 20 minutes into a two and a half hour long film? <laughs> like, <laughs> Are you saying that they nuked the fridge in that scene? No, but like at the end of this movie... I, well, there are incredible set pieces. You know, they have so many people, so many extras in this movie, and there. And you know, the end of this movie has some great shots too. But, but wow, <laughs> wow! Like, what a way to kick off the game. So, and there, there are so many incredible, like, uh, yeah, set pieces and panning shots, and you know, the ca- car driving through a town and it's just like, did they, are, are there really 10,000 extras in this? Yeah. It, I, I did not see this movie coming. I'd never heard of it before, you know, before I'd seen it on our list. And I imagined that this was going to be pretty, pretty lightweight filmmaking. And it is not, I mean, this is like all of the tricks are being thrown at it. And then I, I was like, I mean, I I really enjoyed myself watching it too, and I was surprised when I then went to like the Rotten Tomatoes page about the Night of the Generals and discovered that, generally speaking, it's gotten mixed to negative reviews by the critics. Like I, I thought it was a fascinating movie, and and it's long, but I I was pretty riveted the entire time. I was too. Did you think it was mistitled? Maybe. I don't like this title for this movie. What is the Knight of the Generals? There's no... There's a... The one general has a knight. A couple of knights. Sounds like the title of a trauma film. It's a body snatcher type horror film title. Yeah. It's not a a war film title. It's a... It came out still under the Hays Code and the violence that is described that has been inflicted on the on the prostitutes that die is pretty brutal and pretty rugged, especially like, even though it's, it's only described, they don't, they don't ever show it. Like even, even the descriptions, I'm pretty surprised they managed to release this film with them in. But the descriptions even are truncated. Like, like in the most, in the most graphic moment, before the medical examiner gets to the end of his sentence, um, Omar Sharif is like, all right, all right. We don't need to hear all that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, no cop has ever said that to the medical examiner in a, in a procedural. I, I think that the, the, the brutality of the murders is conveyed by the fact that everyone that turns the corner and looks at the bodies like does a really good job of of making it look like they're going to vomit. Yeah, I love that. We see this in in television all the God, time. Did where I just somebody, say I love that? That's not I what I mean. <laughs> what I love is when a Nazi brutally murders a prostitute and then it makes everyone vomit. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. Please send me email. <laughs> you were trying to Nazi bait me earlier. How does it feel? But, but, you know, you see that reaction all the time where it's like somebody grabs their handkerchief and goes, oh, but the people in this movie really looked like they were going to puke, and yeah. it made the it made the brutality of the murders. Uh, that was the thing I think that 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 caused me to in, imagine something really shocking. Yeah, right. Like not by not showing it, it makes it makes your mind run in a million directions and imagine like wow, they can't even count how many times she was stabbed. Oh my god! Yeah, what right. does that look like? But 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 you're right. The night of the generals. I mean, we have 
there's some tagline or I, I, I think when I was loading it up, when I was queuing it up from the internet. When you were booting up your Tandy personal computer. That <laughs> <laughs> I have bungee corded over my bathtub. You're the only person that gets to the Amazon Prime video via command line. <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, you know, it said like a serial killer in Nazi occupied France or something. And so when we see the, the first murder right at the top of the film, I expect, and especially with the name, the night of the generals, I expected there to, I expected this to be a serial killer movie and that we would see five people die or 15, but really there's only two in, in, in the two and a half hours, only, only two like crime scenes. Do you think that Tantz is a serial killer and that these are just the only killings that we are made aware of? Yeah, because we get that very last one. He's released from prison, and then there's one in in contemporary time. So I think the third one is the one that makes that makes it feel like he's done this a lot. Mm. Right. It's a pattern. Two two is a coincidence. Three is a pattern. <laughs> oh, I killed another prostitute. Oh, that makes what two. What a terrible cellmate Taunts had to be for those twenty years imagine. in. Prison, jeez. Show me your fingernails. <laughs> it's like the most type A Nazi general we've ever seen, which is saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really, and this is from that era where uh, all Nazi movies are made with British actors. And so yeah. like, like high British accents are what we come to think Nazi generals talk like, except they also have people talking with German accents. And if you notice, like every time somebody went on a microphone, it was like, everyone muster to the center or whatever. It was always an, Amer an American voice because apparently British filmmakers think <laughs> of everything coming out of a radio as being in, in American. <laughs> yeah. Mid-Atlantic American. An urgent dispatch for you. Serial killer is a term that didn't exist when this movie came out. Oh. Right. I think that was so, just in the it was in the Amazon description. Yeah, it's in the it's in the the promotional materials subsequent to it was a phenomenon without a without a catchy name in in the pop culture. Is that well, it's you know, Jack the Ripper even when I was a kid, Jack the Ripper still was a really pretty famous boogeyman. I don't know if that's true with kids today. I don't think my daughter's ever heard of Jack the Ripper, but I certainly, by the age of eight, had heard of him. Do you need to uh, pause so you can go tell her about him? Oh, no, she knows all. <laughs> uh, she's more of a fan of Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> she has the, great, the encyclopedia of all the great serial killers here. But surely, the, the, yeah, the concept existed. I mean, that if this movie's about anything, and in a, in a way, this movie's about everything, but if it's about anything, it's about the the question, is there such a thing as an unjust killing during a war in which tens of millions are dying all around you? No, I mean, that's like the, the Omar Sharif character is so fascinating because he keeps saying like he doesn't care about the, the April 20th plot. Like he is, he is so focused on these murders and you wonder like... Were there people in the German intelligence division that were that were thinking like this? Were, like, or is he a, a single deluded man that believes that justice can be possible under the Third Reich, or is he like 
an example of a a normal way of thinking like like they're they're still there's still due process and and justice in this world being like a normalized way of thinking among a certain kind of officer i mean i thought about platoon in light of this i mean platoon is at the center um there's the same kind of question like are there extrajudicial killings as we're walking through and burning this village and hurting all of its inhabitants out you know into a field is yeah is the shooting of this one person an, an illegal crime and the two you know or the the commanding sergeant is going to be prosecuted and drummed out of the army yeah it's where's the line is basically the question what's the michael j fox movie uh, Back to the Future. No. Is that Hamburger Hill? No. Hamburger Hill. <laughs> um, so it's it it's obviously a theme. We've just never seen it. I mean, it's a theme in wartime, not just a theme right. in films about wartime. But we've seen we've seen Americans asking themselves this question in the context of <laughs> Vietnam. But I think this may be the first time we've seen Germans asking themselves this question in the context of World War II. Well, you know, when we watched Come and See the uh, some of the background information about come and see was that that was the brutality of those german troops they were actually a squad of like reprobates and perverts that had been you know intentionally sicked on the ukrainians you know by the germans knowing that they would do atrocious things uh belarusians i don't i don't want you to get letters oh sorry sorry <laughs> belarusians uh knowing that that they would do these terrible things that would be effective an effective strategy but the german you know the wehrmacht itself didn't want anything to do with it so right. you know they were it's like, like a way uh, for the wehrmacht to not be accused of terrorism or whatever right right so they they had this like this platoon of rapers or whatever that they they set loose so there's all this i think sense of you know, over here we're we're burning down a city, and we have all the paperwork stamped, and so we're killing six, six million Jews, but we have the paperwork. And right. over here, there's a guy who killed a kitten, and he's you know, and he's busted down to private and sent to a work camp because he's he showed conduct unbecoming an officer. It's a, I mean, it's. Coming out of this movie, I think it's its principal value as a film is to just put that, you know, right on your plate. Is Omar Sharif a nut or is yeah. he the only <clears throat> the only real gentleman in the film or is he, as you say, deluded because he's also <laughs> working for the Nazis? I think it's important to remember that Major Grau's uh investigation is mostly unmotivated also like he accepts his promotion he goes off and does other work for years at a time it's only incidentally that he continues the investigation over the years right so that's right like i don't i don't he doesn't make any sacrifice in the name of justice in the way that i think uh inspector moran definitely does right i mean he makes the ultimate sacrifice but it's because of that delusion, that idea that there's going to be consequences for somebody like Tans in a time like this. Yeah. He just does a bad job of recognizing that you don't tell a man with a pistol that he's going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You don't show up unarmed solo at this guy's compound where he has 4,000 <laughs> SS troops <laughs> with tanks. The thing about General Tantz's force of personality is that even if he were unarmed, he could ask someone for a weapon. That person would give him a firearm and then he would use it later, even though he was under arrest at the end of the film. That was yeah. cr- that was crazy. I didn't understand how the film ended that way. The guy who gave him the gun turned away from the camera almost out of shame, I thought. I was like, who was that guy? Why would you do that? We never know. I think he, w- he was one of the guys that was there to like celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Nibelungen. Yeah, he was, but maybe he maybe he thought he maybe he thought Tans was going to shoot it out. What was astonishing was Morand like held up a hand restraining anyone from Yeah. Let him take the gun. <laughs> like no, no, no. Let, let let it play out. Let's see what happens. It's like, wow. This could save us a lot of paperwork, guys. <laughs> I found that that was one of the more unsatisfying aspects of the film because I think we've seen in history that suicide was a way that Nazi officers escaped justice. Mm-hmm. And huh, I can't think of any significant Nazis <laughs> that committed suicide. Can you uh, enumerate some of those? <laughs> yeah, you know what? The, their names kind of skip my mind now, too. <laughs> but I just I have this vague sense that they could be like, for instance, waiting on death row. Maybe you could list them alphabetically by first name. <laughs> Were they doing it with uh, like what? Like cyanide or something oh, like that? Yeah, that sounds it's plausible. <laughs> I mean, throughout, throughout the war, right? I think that the, I think there's there, there's some it, within that Prussian code. It's just like uh, you get you get away with it, right? And so, right. so for this movie to have taken us on this two and a half hour journey, and then we don't get we don't get to see I don't know any kind of justice. He shoots himself on a banquet table. Like basically the basically the message of the end of the movie is like, well, dinner is ruined. It's satisfaction transference, right? Because we we don't get the satisfaction of Tantz being brought to justice, but he gets it by controlling his entire story. Like Tantz's entire character is about control and self-control. Right. And he right. even controls his own death. Yes. Um, I had a question about that party that he ruined by uh, punching his own ticket at the end. Um, and I... Uh, found a, a an IMDb goof that uh, that maybe can give us access to this question. General Tanz is portrayed as having commanded the Nibelungen Division of the Waffen SS and later attends a reunion with Banners and Shields saying it was founded in 1940. However, the Nibelungen was formed barely one month before the end of the war in 1945. <laughs> So, uh, well, what do you think about them apples? They got some of their facts wrong, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't really know what this was. I mean, it seemed it seemed bad because of the skull with the crossed cannons under it. But uh, was was this like a? Are we the baddies? Was this a Nazi revival thing that was being depicted, or was it just a? Was it just like you know veterans of foreign wars hangout kind of thing being depicted? Oh no! It was definitely like part of a neo-Nazi, uh, not even revival. You know, at the end of the war, because it's hard to tell, right? Like, the, if 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 you have a VFW hall in Germany, like, doesn't that 
Doesn't that sort of right. encourage th the fomentation of this kind of thing? I mean, you're not going to be able to get the uh, the back room at a at a round table pizza. You can have to <laughs> hold these meetings behind closed doors in in private clubs. Yeah, this is the reason that all the Nazi symbols are banned in Germany now. You know, the war ended, and we had to we had to decide whether we were going to try and prosecute every Nazi or whether we were going to rehabilitate most of them. And part of the reason that Ger that West Germany became an economic powerhouse and a and a friend and ally and one of the great democracies is that we did not go in and scour the earth for every Nazi, but we let them go back to work. Yeah. And we see that we see that in the contemporary uh, shots where it's like, oh wow, all these high-ranking German officers are just walking around in Hamburg hats and doing business. Working at Volkswagen, <laughs> and that's how it was. But the but a lot of those unreformed Nazis, they didn't go through any period of reform. They just immediately started going back to the beer stube and saying, "Well, you know, you know, they never really implemented national socialism." <laughs> the problem is we haven't given it a fair shake. <laughs> we haven't given it a fair shake yet. And I think there, there were a lot of these sort of like reunions in the 60s where it was, you know, they were just it, just national front, basically. The general gobbler character didn't read as having been in jail, right? He, he, he just got to retire at the end of the war. Most of them. Most of the, most of the, the command officers... I mean, they spent a little bit of time in in uh, war in camps, you know, like after the war, the British or the or the Americans like took them and held them, but then stamped their passports and and put them back out, you know, put them back out into the world. They didn't really they weren't sentenced to any any time. Most it's most. easy to look at the at the generals and the higher ups as being guilty and guilty forever and worth prosecution. But what do you do with someone like Ulrika, you know, who was clearly in it, but also resisting her terrible parents? There is this gray area in the middle that I think is both worthy of prosecution and also redemption. And this film does not spend a lot of time in that gray area i don't think because the gray area isn't is only morally gray it isn't legally gray the, right. the case the case that they would make is you cannot sentence an entire army to prison if you do then you have then you've basically like you're occupying a country and you are executing everyone we tried to do that after world war one where we prosecuted the entire nation for the crime and it didn't work one of the ways this film is so effective is is the knots it twists a viewer into like hartman is a nazi so is orika and yet we root for them and are and are satisfied and happy at the end to see you know hartman personally deliver his justice right i don't think hartman's in the nazi party though he's not like a he's not an ss guy is he oh i was about to both sides nazism and then ben got there before i did oh wow 
What a banner day. Please send your letters to Ben at... Hey. Go fuck yourself at maxfunkenstein.sex. Well, uh, we, we use Nazi to... We use, the, we use it now indiscriminately to talk about every German. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think... I don't think Grau or Hartman or General Kallenberg or General Gobbler, you know, none of them are. This is just going to I don't I do not want to read your tweets to me. Please do not send them. But none of them were Nazi party members, probably, you know, that there's. Well, this is an argument we had during Valkyrie, though, right? Like, like, is the idea of all the generals rising up and overthrowing Hitler about more about his insanity and less about what specifically he stood for. I don't think any of them take a stance against Hitler's ideology in the movie and Gobbler's line at the end, like that it was everybody's misfortune that Hitler was not a gentleman is I feel like the, the best illustration of that, that like the, like, yeah, like, I mean, he had a lot of good ideas, but he wasn't like from, he wasn't from like the right stock to really see this thing through. <laughs> if we had, uh, this is a thought experiment we never do, but if Hitler had not perpetrated the Holocaust, if world war two was remembered as a conventional war and the, the form of mass death that we saw was mass death of Russian civilians primarily and Germans, German civilians and, you know, people in Europe dying in war of famine and murder, war murder. Would we, because when we look at World War I, we don't see the Germans particularly as being any more evil than anyone else. They were just a side of, the, of combat. Like the evil that we impart to the Germans in the war is all tied to Hitler's shitty schemes that were that were hidden from you know like a, a a guy on the western front uh, some some officer that's that's doing the officer track some prussian guy that's that has a has two assistants to shine his boots he's not read into the final solution he's seeing a lot of atrocity he's aware of a lot of atrocity certainly the emptying of the ghettos and all that but but He's also, and you know, oh my God, I don't want to, I do not want to be having this conversation because there's so many people that cannot hear it, but we don't prosecute Rumsfeld. We, we sneer at him, but Rumsfeld was just doing his job, right? I mean, there's this, but like, shouldn't we prosecute Rumsfeld? Yeah. But if you start prosecuting Rumsfeld, what you're prosecuting is, is war, is war a thing that we, after the fact, prosecute all the participants i mean it, it's a it's a mentality that war is illegal or war is immoral or war shouldn't exist i think rumsfeld's a bad example for that because the wars that he got us into were entirely optional and but the united states participation in world war ii was precipitated by like being attacked by another country well, but so this is this is the argument i guess that anyone who precipitates a war is uh, is culpable for all the death and anyone that is, that just joins a war because they're forced to is innocent of all the death. It's a deep, deep dive on the question of war. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting that like it's this movie that has us diving into it too, because this is like, it's a, 
uh, police procedural set against the backdrop of the <laughs> April 20th plot set against the backdrop of World War II. Like it's <laughs> and it's ridiculous. Right. But it is it is what makes this movie so fascinating. Yeah. Because you you do have to say as as several characters ask explicitly, why are you worried about this one prostitute? Right. When two two streets over the entire neighborhood was murdered. And it's like, huh, why are we? But also, of course we are. Yeah. And I mean, you could argue that he's operating within this kind of Nazi fetishizing of paperwork and procedure. So he perceives himself to be Whoa. pursuing this murder case because the system works. So your film paper is sort of like Grau is the other side of the Tons coin in their in terms of their fastidiousness and need to uh, tie off every loose end. Well, we is we, that what I you're saying? I think we're in this culture war. We're in this culture. Because I'll write in, that paper, John. I'll write it right now. <laughs> we're in that, this culture war now here, which is that there are a lot of people that are saying we're losing uh, standards of decorum. We no longer have you know, basic respect for institutions and elders. And then you have uh, the another half of the population, the other half of the population, both on the left and the right, saying all of your institutions are bankrupt. You know, all of this respect and gratitude that you expect, those are just systems of oppression. And so, you know, both Grau and Tans, everybody in the film, within their own world, Living, believing that the system works. Humanity's biggest threat has always been itself. We're the we're looking in from outside. Right. We've got the we've got the omniscient viewpoint of the camera to see how how delu- self deluded Omar Sharif's character is, but he can't see that. All he has to work with is the way he was raised and the culture he was raised in, and the and the job he has to do. And everybody knows that Tons is a nut, but he, he's an effective nut. You know, he's the he's the 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 CEO of the company that keeps showing profits. So everybody kind of turns a blind eye to the fact that the world knows he's a scumbag doing acid in his house with <laughs> Grimes and going well, on I, Joe I Rogan think, and trying a blunt. You know, it's the it's the it's more the Harvey Weinstein thing, right? Tons is somebody that is incredibly successful and everybody knows he's a maniac, but nobody wow. says anything. Right. Um, because he keeps making money. So Tons keeps going through attendance, right? Over and over again there's like this churn of them because uh you know, one of them will will put polish on the laces accidentally or or have unkempt uh, fingernail beds but there's that one scene where finally Hartman is elevated to the position of attendant for him and the previous one is given punishment and that punishment is like two weeks jail or something right. something equivalent confined, confined to barracks Tons and Hartman drive away and then we are left with the previous attendant and their general or whatever their 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 man that, above that, him his colonel his man his his yeah Tons my question is, is if everyone knows how fucked up Tons is and everyone is in agreement that his 
methods are severe and his punishments are over the line. Do you think that that attendant was ever actually punished? Or was, is there an understanding among everyone underneath Tans that like, we're going to do... We're going to do the theater for him, but as soon as he's out of earshot or or in the car around the corner, uh, I'm just going to make this guy go away. I'm not actually going to put him in jail. I thought about that as as Tons was driving away. I was like, are, are they going to wink at each other now? There's got to be a conspiracy there. I, I was thinking that the whole time. Because that sergeant doesn't seem super upset. He's like, yeah, right. I'm probably going to lose this gig pretty soon, so... Yeah. Well, but but two things. I think he didn't look that upset because that punishment was relatively light because it's possible that Tons could have, you know, sent him to the Eastern Front. But also, isn't Tons exactly the kind of guy who would follow up to make sure right. that the punishment had been dealt? Hmm. Like Good point. Colonel Sandauer is not going to risk his closeness to Tons by not tying up every loose end. And Colonel Sandauer is like a true believer. He's he's the one at the at the VFW at the end introducing him, right? That's right. That's right. His his ultra his ultimate fan, although never obsequious, really. I mean, he yeah. was just like in the he was there. He was close to power. Do you think they just switched that uh, Panzer reunion meeting to like eulogizing? <laughs> Like, tonally, that's a pretty easy <laughs> shift, right? Uh, Tons is still there. He's just in the buffet room. Right. We're all saying nice things about him anyway. He's We, we can't really go in and sit around the table because it's covered with Tons. I mean, we have all this food, guys. There is a lot of food I mean, there. these sausages aren't just going to eat themselves. We already paid the caterer. Let's just uh, try, to, let's try to make the best of this. Yeah, it turned into a wake. I didn't love the way... That the that 1966 was introduced into this film. Yeah, it was very jarring. When we arrive in 1966, there's no title card. There's no explanation. You're just left to like say what now? What? Who? <laughs> What's the first moment of that? Is that the Volkswagen factory or is that somewhere else? It's the tour buses out in front of the museum, right? That turns it's, into a Nazi headquarters. Just a hard. I cut. really agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably the least effective device in the film. It might have even happened before that. It's just that it was we didn't we didn't get it. Yeah, right. That was the first time that it was like long enough that you went, oh, I see what I seem to spend more time waiting for baggage than traveling. That through line over the course of the movie allowed us to see so many of these characters after the war, 20 years after the war, living yeah. normal lives. And that became gradually a key element and kind of a, it was never, it was never like directly an, in, an indictment of anything, but it was a, it was a further kind of oblique indictment of the whole enterprise. I mean, I loved the character of inspector Morand. I just loved him. His, yeah. Yeah. his tone, his kind of like, I don't know, his physicality. He never raises his voice or anything, and he's got that posture of a man who's who's definitely like feeling the weight of his decisions. Like his physicality, I really enjoyed. But you also feel like he he has he's the guy that has information coming from everywhere, and everybody respects him. But the idea that he then became an Interpol, like a high-ranking Interpol inspector who's still running this whole thing. Like, that's the crazy thing. The movie is from the perspective of Morand. Yeah. 
And we don't even meet him until hour two. Yeah, we don't realize he's the main character until a long, long time. Yeah, without Moran, there's no, this story never gets told. But we don't meet him in the first, in the first or second act. Is there any uh, truth to the idea that somebody in the German, in German intelligence would be exchanging information and doing favors for the French resistance like this? Sure. The Abwehr, which is the German inner, that, that, that's like the German wartime police. And it's who... I think I've got an Abwehr casserole dish in my kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was, um, you know, like any kind of secret police, they were almost certainly making deals and making plots and... Devil and triple agenting. Yeah, and selling arms to, to, to save the hostages to the Sandinistas, all that stuff. You know, putting crack in the inner city. It's just what military intelligence does. <laughs> yeah, the, the Paris crack epidemic is a real scandal yeah. around this time. They're arming the Contras in the Pyrenees. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I think uh, Moran shows up at the 30-minute mark because he's, remember, he's interviewing the uh, uh, Hauptmann's uh, cousin who works for the Donald Pleasance general who, who who becomes like a bar owner. Did we see his face in that? Yeah, we do. But you don't know what this is or who these people are until right. and uh, like that's like one of the few cuts that works because when it cuts, you realize that the, the, the guy that owns the bar that's talking to the other guy is also the sergeant. But yeah. like some of these are older actors that are cast to like look a little bit like the younger actors. And some of them are the same actor just with talc in their hair to make them look older. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was a little confusing. That question of Moran's safety throughout the film makes me wonder the problem that Grau presents the generals is something that can't be punished in the same way. It seems like Moran could easily be taken off the board because everyone knows that Moran is assisting Grau. Do they though? That's the weird thing about that whole, that whole, like you were saying, he was, Grau was investigating this on his weekends. Yeah. Nobody suspected that he would be using the French police to, to keep tabs on these guys. Because if they knew that, then Grau would, Grau's danger would be, would be more lethal than just taking a promotion and being shipped off to another part of the world. The thing is that w- that Kallenberg, like who, the, one of the ineffective things about this movie is that, that it kind of tries to make us not know which general is the killer. And that's the murder mystery aspect of it, but it's not very good, you know, because we don't get very many scenes where or all three of them could be the killer. We have yeah, Colin, Colin Berg seems a little bit suspicious because he has no no private life. But then by the like the forty five minute mark, we know that that's because he's like plotting to <laughs> kill Hitler. But also, like films use a technology of of jingling their keys at you. Like it feel it felt too obvious that Tantz would be the killer because the movie wants you to think that so early and so often. Yeah. Right. It can't be Tantz. Gobbler is doing like a like a side to side eye thing. I mean Gobbler has an actual monocle, so he, he seems <laughs> he seems like a bad guy from jump. 
I mean, he's like in a way like the criminal that goes totally unpunished in this movie because he kind of gets to hedge himself with the with the Valkyrie plot. Like, yeah, I mean, if it works, but I don't, I'm you know I'm keeping my distance in case it doesn't. Uh, he doesn't go to jail after the war. He like he he just got to be a German general all the way through World War II and never face any downsides for any of the decisions he made. Well, and he's the Prussian, right? He's the only one with Vaughn in front of his name. Right. Nobody could live through that. Back to Berlin. It's fun triangulating others, other movies against the one that we're watching. Like, knowing so much more about the Iron Cross in this film was was made possible by the other film. Like, Valkyrie made the end of this film more enjoyable for it being seen previously also. I like how this right. is working out for us. <laughs> But the but the murder mystery isn't on anyone's radar in the movie. Like Collenberg, when when Grau shows up again in France two three years later, it has to remind Collenberg about this murder. Right. And Collenberg is thinking about the Valkyrie plot. <laughs> Collenberg is like that crime. God, I've committed so many much worse crimes. <laughs> but all everybody in the movie is they're just like you're who are you again? Like, yeah. like they don't even shoo him out of the office because they're they're so he's like I'm about to get a phone call about whether Hitler is dead or not. Yeah. Can I help you with something? Yeah, Grau, like, being there when he gets that call and, like, not caring and just, like, oh, cool, this actually, like, opens up a great opportunity for me to go arrest Tons is, like, an amazing moment. I love that scene for Kallenberg's stress. I thought that was extremely well done, those five minutes. Totally great. And, you know, and Grau literally tiptoes back out through the door while the rest of the, the guys are like, all right, we're taking over Germany now. He's like, oh, this is my chance. I also really nope. loved hearing the the fallout over the radio when we're in Tanz's office later on when when Omar Sharif is attempting to arrest him to hear the changing conclusion of the Valkyrie mission happen in almost real time. Really well done. Very stressful. I think this is a much better Valkyrie movie than Valkyrie. I don't know. Stauffenberg isn't very good looking in this film. Doesn't look anything That's like true. Tom Cruise. <laughs> um you never get the feeling that this movie is putting the side of righteousness on the generals that were involved in the plot. It's not that they like, like they just want to staunch the bleeding of the war. Like they're doing this for totally pragmatic reasons. Not, not because they were like against the entire project of national socialism. Right. They say it just the bald face, like, well, we've lost this war. So let's, let's get, let's get out of it with our, with our skin intact. Right. It, it's crazy how economically the Valkyrie story can be told. Right. It does not need a whole movie. It only needs to be the fourth <laughs> subplot of this movie. And like the Rommel stuff is like, is it's just stuck in there, but it, it kind of gives all, uh, all of the detail you need, right? Like the, Oh yeah. Right. Like if, uh, if this works, it's going to be great for me. Erwin Rommel, but <laughs> <laughs> and we get to, we get a two minute Donald uh, a two minute Christopher Plummer uh, cameo, which is yeah, uh, that good. is just not enough. He got paid with a Rolls Royce for this for this part. I wanted so much more Christopher Plummer. I know, right? I can't tell how much the Valkyrie story 
was widely known in 1966. Yeah. And whether or not a, a 66 film going audience would have, everybody would have known about Valkyrie. So it would have been obvious what was happening or whether it would have just seemed like a James Bond plot that nobody knew was actually true and kind of faithfully reproduced. The earliest references to it are just Colin Berg's like nervous about Tons getting to Paris at, on the day that he is supposedly getting there, right? Like if if you're picking up on it, then you have to know what the significance of that date is. Yeah, there's a ton of that kind of foreshadowing where it's like, so what? Why is the 20th of July something that we should know about? That's a day that lives in anonymity. If you ask most people, I think a day a day that's like a that's like a a, a half empty balloon that you grab the end and you go. <laughs> <laughs> What did you think of the um, of the tour of Paris that Tans gets and the focus that uh, Hartman put on significant places and events in the French Revolution? It was super clever writing, but I was really taken by the fact that I think that we were looking at actual stock footage of a car driving around Paris during the war. Because sometimes it was in black and white. Mm. Uh, you're you're looking out the back window of the car as it's driving down the Champs Elysees, Champs Elysees, <laughs> with you know Nazi flags hanging, but everything's in black and white, and it looks like it's grainy kind of wartime footage. And then you then it's front projected. One time there was a shot where everything was in black and white, but it looked like someone had colorized one of the flags. It was really weird. It was really weird. I. I was like, were there were there examples of the swastika flag that were gray, or am I misinterpreting what I'm seeing? It it felt like those shots. If you were gonna, it's one thing to go in and and hire a town in Poland and say we're gonna make a war movie here. It's another thing to drape downtown Paris with Nazi flags, right? To make an incidental like through the back window shot of a car driving around. It just, I don't think this movie had that kind of budget. No, they spent all of that money on, on blowing up 25 buildings in Warsaw. (laughs) (laughs) The intensity of the scene was super striking to me. Just a, just a man in the backseat getting hammered during this tour. And I really liked the composition of like how they, snipped the film and inserted it into the rearview mirror and and actually built this thing as an effect. I liked all of it. Well, and the incredible the incredible tension that that they that they got because they we spent an hour and a half thinking that Tans was a teetotaler. Right. And the first time we the first time we even see this is when his his last uh his last valet is like, oh, he drinks like a sponge. And we're like, what? <laughs> Tans doesn't drink. Tans is way. And then all of a sudden we're watching him down this cognac or whatever. Entire bottle of cognac. It comes as a surprise for a man who just drinks that single shot of brandy with breakfast. You're like, all right, well, he's he's like functional. He's just like microdosing brandy throughout the day. Little do we know until he gets in the back seat that he's he's taken bottles to the dome. <laughs> To the extent that he has like a near religious experience when he sees the decadent art. But it's specifically the Van Gogh piece, right? 
Like Van Gogh in Flames is the one that really gets him off. Painted in the asylum. Yeah. That's that's a pretty broad projection. That doesn't feel like the best writing in the movie. <laughs> that felt like film student writing to me. Like that felt very hand in glove. Like let's let's draw a line between these two guys right here. There's no subtext to that moment of Tan's like having a total freak out. He's going to get a sweaty lip here. Right, right. I thought it was fascinating, like the return trip there, like that Tans was actual blackout drunk the first time and he didn't remember going there the first time. Did you guys feel that way or am I way off? No, I like your interpretation. I, I thought that he was just like daring Hartman to second guess him. Oh, but oh, that's fucked up. But no, I think I think the idea that he was blacked out is a totally good read. I like either one of those. Yeah, I never think of blacking out because I've never blacked out, so. I I thought my interpretation in the moment was what Ben was saying, that it was just another, it was more gaslighting from Tans. Do you think Tans's violence against women was an expression of his homosexuality? It's implied, but I mean, a lot of that is, is in the casting of Peter O'Toole. If you're going Mm. to get a fastidious general who is, you know, a latent uh, homosexual who's taking it out as as like a serial killer, you couldn't get a better actor than super drunk Peter O'Toole. (laughs) (laughs) You also like couldn't have a bigger challenge than telling the story about the latently sexual homosexual Nazi general who's murdering prostitutes then under the Hayes code. <laughs> <laughs> well, but think, think about this when we're at the museum and Tons has got a sweaty lip and we're driving around Paris and he is drinking and seems completely unhinged. The movie has still not revealed who the real killer is. And it all feels like it could be misdirection. Yeah. That the whole time we're watching Tans become like more and more of a psycho that the movie could sneak out that it's actually Kallenberg the whole time. And if that were what the movie was doing, it would have been doing a terrible job. But (laughs) I was watching it still with that in mind. Like, are we really spending this much time like really hammering home that this guy's a creep? We already know he's a creep. Who's the killer? Not all (laughs) creeps are murderers. You've been saying this. For years, John. (laughs) It was Growl the whole time. It was Growl was the killer. And then when it's like, oh, no, he's the killer. The one that seemed like the killer. That's yeah. That's when the whole like murder mystery third of this movie becomes a little bit of a wet rag, a wet rag in the in my lap while I'm wearing a nice suit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. That's not where you put that wet rag. No, it's not. And I have to stand up and give a speech. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you're about to eulogize at the Panzer reunion, John. Mm -hmm. Stand up and say, It's an embarrassing moment. The Reich will stand again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Night of the Generals, I wish had a different title. But uh, by the end of this segment... Uh, will not need a new rating system because this one's perfect. Of course, it's the red stripes. The red stripe is the thing that the uh, the guy who witnesses the first murder 
notices while uh, while while peeking through the crack of the bathroom. What is this bathroom doing having so many cracks in it? Is a question I had. I'm a lot of privacy afforded. You're from Poland. You tell us. <laughs> I don't know. Was he looking through? Was he looking through the moon cutout in the door? No, it's it's you know it wasn't the moon cutout. <laughs> Polish bathrooms have cracks in the doors to let the the poo ghosts out. That's right. You're you're eating a lot of cabbage in Poland. It's gonna get gassy in there. Anyway, this is like the main thing that we learn in the first five minutes of the movie. Only German generals wear red stripes on their trousers, and that is the thing that that gathers our three suspects together, the three generals. So on a scale of one to five red stripes, and I don't mean the beers, we will be rating the Knight of the Generals. Those stripes are also the thing that determines how seriously the investigators take the witness's story, right? That's a great scene. Yeah. That witness is reluctant to say what he saw because he saw those red stripes. It's not just that he saw a German uniform. It's it's that the stripes elevated the crime to that to that level of of the generalship. Well, and it's why and Omar Sharif believes him because it, it like why because would you there's no way this guy would say it. He would never go out on that limb uh, if it weren't true. Yeah. You're totally right. I love how anxiety works in this movie. Like the anxiety of figuring out who could be the murderer here, the anxiety of the Valkyrie mission, the Anxiety that Hartman and his lady friend feel. Uh, this triangulation of all of these things adds up to a, a movie that really sustains that feeling to me for its two and a half hours. It was very uncomfortable throughout for those reasons. And I really loved the knots that this movie made me twist into thinking about how fucked up it is to investigate a murder among murderers and and the measurement that an investigator has to use in order to determine whether something is prosecutable in a time of war. I mean, that's, that's a question that we batted around a little bit on this show, but it's really a question without an answer. It's impossible to answer. To the extent that it was thoughtful about such things, I like I like how it presented those concepts, and I thought it was a a really interesting film. And the performances, I might come up, come down on a on the opposite side of John here. Like if if Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif were uh, were hostages in this production, I couldn't tell to the extent that he did. I'm gonna give it four and a quarter stripes, four and a quarter red stripes. I really like this movie a lot, and it was extremely thought-provoking and and that's setting aside that that all of the set pieces we got the destruction of that polish corner was incredible i mean there was there's not a lot of that in the film but there was enough of it to to keep me going so i dug it i think it should be seen good movie as i said i didn't expect a movie as uh huge of scope and as beautifully executed as this movie when I sat down to watch it. I uh, I thought that this was going to be a, you know, like a, a movie that is as forgettable as it is forgotten. And boy, I was uh, I was surprised at how much, uh, how engaged I was and how engaging some of the ideas were. I think that um, it like, it digs deeper on some of these things than a lot of the movies we've watched. And uh, 
despite being about some pretty brutal stuff, is just like a pretty entertaining yarn as well. I think there's a couple of problems, but I'd uh, I really encourage people to check this one out if they haven't seen it. Uh, four and a half stripes from me. Whoa. Big fan. I'm going to be the grouch. <laughs> I feel like uh, it is an enjoyable yarn, but it's an enjoyable yarn that is, uh, <clears throat> is being cats cradled in the back of a school bus by <laughs> four little girls who don't know how to do cats cradle. Hmm. I think this film is a little more cats in the cradle. <laughs> if you get Ooh, my drift. I do. I uh, I think that there are so many great ideas in this movie. So much food for thought. We watch we watch a lot of movies in in the making of this show where you kind of you get done with the movie, think about it for a minute or two, think about it for a little bit, but you know, after watching a lot of war movies, uh, a movie's got to explore something. It's one of the things that I that I don't like about so many movies. It's not exploring anything. It's just like throwing up some garbage. And this movie is exploring a lot, so much, in fact, that it's um if if we had another hour, I think we could go we could go pretty far along a discussion that's asking some really, really interesting questions. And not just hard ones, but fundamental ones. The performances are even even though there's a lot of hate acting in this movie, it's incredible because they're the great actors of that generation. And we didn't even really touch on uh, on how good Tom Courtney is. Like, yeah, he's really uh, a central character in this film. And I, I, I expected to think that he was kind of uh, a lightweight character and not one that we needed to care about too much. But that tour of Paris and everything that happens afterward, he really is. I mean, he's acting up a storm, you know. Did you get Martin Freeman vibes from him? I yeah, sure did. Yeah, for sure. And he was that kind of actor in the mid '60s. You know, he was like a hip mod actor. I think one of the main problems of the movie is that it was made in 1967 or '66, and the fashion at the time was for you know long camera shots of someone lighting someone else's cigarette you know and it <laughs> it hadn't gone all the way to deer hunter where it's just like well let's just put a camera in here and have a party it was much more stylized you know and there's a lot of style to this movie but that style sometimes gets in the way you know there's all this like 60s kind of affect and if you take all of those all of those scenes where we just we spend five minutes of the film watching a chanteuse or, you know, watching a guy <laughs> raking his garden or watching somebody adjust the feather in their Homburg, it ends up being 45 minutes of a, a extra to a movie where they could have spent that time either giving us more of a plot for the... Uh, Believe me, this movie couldn't have more plot, but it could have done a better job of either telling the detective story or or putting the detective story somewhere more central to the film because it's ostensibly about that. But we we also get Project Valkyrie. We also get the romance between the general's daughter and the corporal. We also get I mean, every one of these characters also has their own movie. So I think it's a really important 
a really cool movie to watch. It's more than a popcorn film. It's a popcorn film where you get all the cool effects, but you also get lots to talk about afterwards. But it's a hot mess. Most hot messes actually have some grease coagulating around them. This mess is steaming hot. (laughs) So I'm going to give it 3.75 red stripes. Right. One stripe for each one of the generals. Mm. And then 0.75 stripes for the 80 million killed in World War II. <laughs> Thank you. I'm out. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but John, did you have a guy? <laughs> that is that is such a virtuous rating. John. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. Good Thank for you. Thank- you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, my guy is uh, is Moran suits, but I'm gonna, yeah. I'm, gonna I'm gonna inhabit That's Moran not a suits. Guy. I'm gonna inhabit Moran suits with Morand. There I, you go. And it's it's hard to have him be my guy because he's a he's a central character, but he's a central character in a movie with fourteen central characters. So I think I can get away with it. Yeah, he's only on mm. screen for like. Eight percent of the movie. He's a real French mensch. He is a mensch, French mensch, which is a great candy bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Ben? Who's your guy? I think I'm gonna make my guy Sergeant Kopke, uh, who is kind of a kind of a, a rube, but just trying to protect his his cousin Hartman. He's the uh, he's the guy that gets Hartman the meeting with uh, with Kallenberg and um, just you know stays stays there in the meeting correcting Cal- uh, Hartman the entire time because Hartman is not interested in trying to impress this general at all and uh, I, I I felt for that guy I I mean I, he's played as kind of foolish all the way through but um, but loves his family and is just trying to get the best for them so. Adam, did you have a guy? I really wanted my guy to be Kallenberg because I really like characters who who have that don't give a fuck attitude of of insulting the person they're in the same room with. Like Kallenberg has the stones to do that at Tons in front of the gobblers. Like Eleanor Gobbler's in there and the Donald Pleasance character is like openly talking about Tanz's death and the idea of of Ulrich marrying a statue and a moment like that really stuck out to me as like I love that kind of that kind of resistance right the the verbal resistance right the passive aggressive resistance I mean if if you know anything about me you know that passive aggression is my stock and trade so <laughs> uh, for that reason I'm going to make Kallenberg my guy you're passive aggressive. I've never noticed that. Weird. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't know that, Ben. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think it is about time to decide what our next movie is going to be, and we don't decide that. Fate decides. <laughs> here we go. I got the 120 sided die out here, ready to do the roll. For a while, that die was missing. It was it. Where did you find it? The die was in a in a box as part of my move, but I realized mm. that like most of, or I'm sorry, unlike most of the other things that I own that are in boxes and still in boxes, um, 
and I haven't looked at them in a year, I could not just let the dye sit moldering in a storage space, and so I went to retrieve it. And now Good I have job it by you. Because it's essential to our story. Okay, here we go. Thirty-two. Thirty-two is a film from 1980, directed by Don Taylor. <laughs> it's a World War II time travel film. <laughs> oh, it's called The Final Countdown. I've been wanting to do this one forever. I've never seen Final Countdown. We thought for a long time this would be a good live show movie, but I think so few people have ever seen it that it wouldn't work for that. Yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird edge case. Is it uh, a pork chop movie? Is it uh, is it an actual war movie? We're going to have to decide next week on Friendly Fire. <laughs> we'll leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dipmore, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Last year on Friendly Fire, we put out an episode covering Come and See from 1985 a film about the atrocities a young Belarusian freedom fighter experiences during World War II. It was recently released on Criterion and is not for the faint of heart. Remember that Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of listeners like you. You can leave us a positive rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, and you can also head to MaximumFun.org join to pledge your support. If you do, you'll gain access to our monthly Pork Chop episode as well as all the Maximum Fun bonus content. If you'd like to chat online about the podcast, please join one of our online social media discussion groups, or just simply use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at Cup for Time, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Friendly Fire. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.